Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Perhaps, like me, you're not familiar with Eric's name. Let's learn together, shall we? Eric covers a bit of his own history, and a lot on his current, in 1992, perspective on where Apple is headed. QuickTime and 68040 Macs have already been around for about a year at this point. So has Windows 3.0 and 3.1, along with low-cost Macs, and along with them, much lower margins and profits. So things are already heading downhill here. We're doing the interview thing again, so... This is Jerry Burrell, editor-in-chief of Macworld, talking down the phone to... Eric Harslam of Apple Computer, who sounds like this. Macworld, September 1992. An interview with Eric Harslam by Jerry Burrell. Eric Harslam, the vice president of desktop computing at Apple, grew up in Shaker Heights, a suburb of Cleveland. He graduated from the California Institute of Technology with a bachelor's in engineering in 1967. Then a year later, earned a master's from the University of Wisconsin at Madison in computer science. After graduate school, he began working at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California, where he was involved for eight years with projects such as the initial implementation of the ARPANET and helped develop video graphics systems on IBM mainframes. In 1976, Harslam began seven years of work for Xerox, designing the user interface and parts of the operating system toolbox of the Star, a predecessor of Apple's Lisa and Macintosh. He joined Apple in 1983. In between high-intensity assignments, Harslam has trekked through remote regions of Nepal. What was your first job at Apple? I managed the Lisa Software Group. Ed Burse, Rich Page, Bill Atkinson, Larry Tesler, all, quote, worked for me. A high-powered group. But the Lisa failed. Not for lack of trying. It was a great research project, and the basis for the Mac, but it probably should have never shipped. Four months after starting the software group, Lisa was shut down. Lisa was announced in January of 1983 and shipped in June. I started in July in a fairly unstructured organization. In three months, we did the international release. 7-7 was Lisa's third and final software release. It had seven integrated applications. By November, the Lisa division had been combined by Steve Jobs with the Mac division and called the Apple 32 division. All three new leases are 100% Macintosh software compatible. These four workstations form the foundation of the Apple 32 Supermicros, a family of compatible products based on Lisa technology and 32-bit architecture. Later, it reverted back to the Mac division. What was your last job with the Lisa group? I laid off 35 people in my group. That was the first time we lost money at Apple. I brought part of my former group into the Mac division, and I started on the Apple file server with Gersharan Sidhu. It was announced at the Apple shareholder meeting before it was done. We built a logic board using Mac ROMs. We started to work on Apple Talk. We chose SCSI as a disk interface, which was later added to the Mac Plus. What happened to the file server? At that time, the Mac had no hard disk. My bosses saw what I was working on and said to go do an external hard drive for the Mac. So I started what became the HD20. And once the Mac had a hard drive, they said, why do we need a file server? So that stopped, and Sadu moved on to do Apple Talk. 
Once the HD20 was done, I went on to start up the Mac Plus project in June of 85. The Plus is reputed to have been a risky project for Apple at that time. It turned out that Jerome Coonan and Larry Kenyon were already working on the next-generation Mac software. We pulled the ROM project together with a crash hardware effort from July of 85 to January of 86 to add a megabyte of memory and SCSI to the system board, along with a new floppy drive and extended keyboard. Jean-Louis Gasset said, Eric, we're introducing it whether it's ready or not. We launched on January 26, 1986. I remember that in early December, we stopped the manufacturing line on the Mac 512. Although the Apple IIe was still producing the bulk of the company revenues, Macintosh sales were pretty much a do-or-die situation. In its first year, the Plus re-established the credibility of the Macintosh. Then I went to New Zealand for a month, and when I came back, it was to run the Mac Software Group. Were you rewarded for your work on the Plus? I don't remember. There was some cash. I took a month off. For the next 13 months, my group's primary accomplishment was to do the system software for the SE, the Macintosh 2, and MultiFinder, a project of Eric Ringwald and Phil Goldman, also for the new architecture that ultimately became Pink. By February of 87, we had done the SE, in April, the Mac 2. I took a month off after that, and when I came back in June of 87, Jean-Louis said, go run CPU engineering. How many people were working for you? About 200. At first, I was the director of CPU engineering. The former director, Steve Sackerman, went off to start up Newton. In the first 15 months, we did the Mac 2X. After the drive to get out the SE and the 2, there was real exhaustion in both the hardware and the software groups. There was a debate on where to go with product strategy. The following February, we did the SE30, then the 2CX, then the Portable, and the 2CI, then the 2FX, then the Classic, the 2SI and LC, then the Classic 2, Quadras, eight computers in two years, all but one of which was a hit. The Portable was another great learning experience. Then came the great reorganization of 1990. What are your responsibilities now as the vice president of the desktop computing division? Everything that plugs into the wall and doesn't require batteries. Portables left my group. Now that we have business units like Randy Batats for portables and John Moons for imaging, in addition to hardware engineering, I have marketing and hardware-dependent system software device drivers and system software. Roger Heinen's group, Macintosh Software Architecture Division, does the Mac reference releases such as System 7. How many people are in your group now? About 500. We just did some restructuring. We were about 100 more earlier. How do you manage a group that size given your complex mandate? With great difficulty. I guess I'd better give you a serious answer to that. We emphasize pushing decision-making down to the lowest levels, the project teams, to run their own businesses. For example, Steve Manser is responsible for 68,000 modular hardware and dedicated software. Hai Chung does the same for Integrated Macs. They each have largely autonomous project teams working for them. What happened to Motorola's processors? They seem to have run out of juice. Early in the PC era, they were ahead of the pack with the 68000. Now the x86 is a bit better positioned. Motorola was too ambitious on the 68040, 
It took a longer time to bring it to market, and it's more complex than the 8486. Arguably, it performs better. With three architectures, the PowerPC, the 68000, and the 88000, Motorola has been, at times, spread too thin. Intel has all of its weight behind the x86 architecture. MFR interruption. It may not have been quite that simple. At the time of the 486, the Intel i860 was a priority until quite late in the 486 project's lifespan. According to Rod Canyon's book on Compaq, Open, Compaq had to take Intel aside and beat them down until they made the 486 a priority again. Motorola tried to get into the risk business and put resources behind the 88K while still doing 68,000 development. This has cost the 68,000 in terms of competitiveness. In adding PowerPC to the equation, we're working with Motorola and IBM to balance future deliveries for the 68K. We're working with Motorola to keep the 68K on track in price performance. We're the major consumers of that processor outside of the automotive world. What's next? There are a number of future directions for the 68040, for cost, for performance, and for lower power consumption. The follow-on architecture for the 68K is for dual instruction issue, similar to the 8586. Two instructions are executed at once. Ultimately, risk architectures with fewer transistors per MIP, hence lower power requirements, and less cost is probably the best direction. What happened with Motorola's 88100 RISC product line? The 100 and the 110, which we helped design, are rumored to be the basis of future next machines. We use the 100 for some prototypes, but for us, the PowerPC is the future. What's the PowerPC concept? It's an outgrowth of the Apple-IBM alliance. The RS6000, processor mother of the PowerPC, evolved from the original IBM RISC processor developed in the early 1980s. That evolved into the power architecture at IBM, which became widely used for workstations. It's an architecture that's relatively complex. As part of the arrangements in the Apple-IBM deal, we participate in the co-development and evolution of a subset of the power architecture called PowerPC. We're focused on the more generally applicable aspects of the power architecture. We made functions to run COBOL optional and evolved the power concept closer to classical RISC ideas. That's important because we want the PowerPC to become a high-volume, low-cost processor. How do you rank the sales of Macintosh computers? In broad terms, the Mac LC is by far the most popular single model. The 2SI was recognized by Datamation as the most popular PC in business. In fact, if you evaluate sales by our four markets, education, large business, small business, and consumer, you'll get different answers. The LC and Classic in K-12, the 2SI and 2CI in most business markets. Higher education is a blend. The Classic doesn't sell the most? This year, the sum of the Classic and 2SI sales is roughly the same as LC sales. What about the 2FX? The 2FX is still popular with some people. We've gotten over compatibility problems with Quadras from non-sanctioned programming practices, practices that cause incompatibilities with the O40. Applications with self-modifying code didn't work with the O40 caches turned on. Quadra acceptance was slow as a result. The 2FX sold for some time due to that and to the fact that the 2FX is still on government lists. 
but new versions of applications have long since been on the market. The Quadra compatibility problems have long since been solved. Why isn't there a color classic yet? It's something we're hard at work on. Over the years, we've faced a number of challenges from product design and an engineering view, such as how we retain the look and feel of a classic with larger color CRTs, larger power supplies. We have to refine a color classic's appearance at a cost that can get it into the line in a way that will make sense. We also have to look at what we already have with the LC and a color monitor. How do they compare? With the classic, the form factor was simple. It was plug-and-play other than the keyboard and the mouse. We want some of the advantages of the all-in-one, the small footprint, and to not just add color, but make it multimedia-ready and expandable. That sounds like the LC with the CD-ROM that John Scully has announced. That's one thing. The point I was making was for the complete family, not just, say, the Color Classic. Color is an area where the Classic is behind. We want new products to be CD-ROM ready, to have speech recognition, sound in and out. Speakers and microphones are important. Out of that set of things, you can imagine products that would make sense. CD-ROMs would be built into all machines? I think the direction is to have products designed with flexibility. Products configured for flexibility as well as for special purpose designs. The LC is an important product in some markets. Its size and cost are important to maintain without turning the CPU into a big, ugly PC clone. We want flexible storage, slots, and other features for customers who want to add in disk drives. This way, Apple, or others, could configure Macs with a CD-ROM drive. There will be a better market as CD-ROMs take off. It's not clear that it makes sense yet to put the $200 cost of a CD-ROM into all machines for all people. I know what you're thinking, but the hit CD-ROM game, Mist wouldn't appear until a year after this interview. How long will it be before low-end Macs have video built in? We've had on-board display video since the Apple II on through the LC. What you probably mean is video in and video out and a frame grab capability. In QuickTime, we have a good architecture to support various video in and video out and compression capabilities. We want to incorporate NTSC video in the Mac as quickly as technology and cost will allow, and as usage patterns dictate. What can you do to increase low-end CPU performance? A two-part answer, in the 68000 world and in RISC. In the 68K world, by using our special relationship with Motorola. In terms of price and value, we'd like to get a faster clock rate 68030 and low-cost 68040s to bring 68040 power to a system with a street price ultimately well under $2,000. The big performance opportunity is the RISC PowerPC. Working with IBM and Motorola to define the PowerPC architecture, we're gaining commitments from both companies to get a scalable architecture in order to take RISC under a $2,000 street price. How do you measure what's important? MIPS? What does that mean to users? We're now in a performance glut. People in the PC DOS world are buying 8486 because it's there. They can afford it. It's not driven by new applications requiring more horsepower. Most applications need 8386 and 68030 processors. It's not clear yet 
that either applications or customers really need 486s or 040s. Personally, I'm a Mac write user for which an 030 is fine. But we're focusing on risk because we can see next generation applications that will require greatly increased performance. The Quadra 950 has 24 bits of video memory on the system board. Is that the trend? In terms of functionality, the LC was our evaluation of what should be on the system board and what should not, the first major rethink since the original Mac. What you put on a system board is a crystal ball gazing exercise. Describe Apple's hardware upgrade philosophy. We do logic board upgrades. Mac Plus for the 128K Mac, SE30 for the Mac SE, 2CI for the 2CX, Quadra for the 2CI and CX, 2FX for the Mac 2 and 2X. Lots of logic board upgrades which allow our customers to recycle their CPU investment, the DRAM, box, disk, and so on. Another thing we're looking at is modularity. Aside from the system board, ways in which computers can be upgraded. It's similar to the Intel approach you see advertised, which is great for Intel, but not for system sellers. We've included PDS slots, processor direct slots, on several CPUs. We let companies like Daystar Digital provide upgrades and derive revenues from that. The 2CI product has seen modular upgrades like cache cards and processor cards, something that we're considering for the future. The logic board upgrades have been moderately successful, but are usually not very high volume products. Because they were freaking expensive. The Radius license was the first real release of system code outside of Apple, wasn't it? For all practical purposes, the Radius Rocket is a license of our ROM. The first license deal we've done, compared with subsets of system software like AppleTalk, which has been licensed for some time. Why? For a couple of reasons. First is that the Radius Rocket, and the notion of a compute server, is an innovative concept, and we're happy to see the Mac first with it. It doesn't exist in the PC world. Most PC activity is confined to someone doing work on one's own CPU. Servers are specialized, for databases and so on. The Rocket gives one Mac more CPUs. Rockets are virtual Macs on the desktop, so you can do multiple things at once. It's built on the IAC, Inter-Application Communication, features of System 7. What does that mean for Apple's future policy about licensing its operating system? For deals that make sense, we're open to licensing. We've been approached by several companies in the desktop publishing business who would like to address high-end needs. There are a lot of interesting things that we'll never get to at Apple. How many CPU prototypes do you have underway at any one time? Including portables, about a dozen. The number's been increasing. Remember 1986 when you could have any Mac you wanted as long as it was a plus? The same was true for IBM in 1986. You could have any PC you wanted as long as it was an AT. Today you can go out and buy any of 10 different Macs. Customers want a broader range of choices. The difference and the driving factor now is the number of markets. For example, K-12 through in the US. We've sold a generic product into that market with K-12 through oriented add-ons. Today, they might be interested in the LC with a 2E card as a bundle. As we go forward, it may make sense to build a K-12 specific product with different plastics or colors.
The same sort of thing is coming from companies like IBM, which has the same product architecture, but different form factors for different markets, such as the PS1 and the PS2. In the consumer market, it makes sense for there to be more product variants than we have now. Now we need to identify the sweet spots in the market. We have a limit on the number of dollars we have to invest, and we have to avoid the pursuit of products that won't sell in volume. How many products that you evaluate or prototype actually make it into the market? We've formalized our development into something called ANPP, Apple New Product Process. We want to preserve the freedom for entrepreneurial efforts and yet provide a loose framework for product development. We've established points of review and development for products. We want to start a lot of products, and we expect to see maybe 40% of them get killed in the first or second month. When we get to the prototype stage, when we're validating a product's specifications against a market segment, we'd like our fatality rate to be 10% or less. Otherwise, you burn people out and spend too much money. ANPP gives people an opportunity to get a lot of product ideas started and the best make it out the door. I remember helping to develop the Xerox Star. It was a great idea. We went underground for five years to get it done, but there wasn't enough reality checking against the real world. Xerox sold a closed system at a time when the Apple II was already out, a completely open system. How do you design a computer to match what customers want? Historically, both our corporate and development philosophies were focused on building products that are more universal, the Mac Plus, the SE30, and the 2CX and 2CI, not just a K-12 through or just a business product. We wanted to build products with appeal across broad markets. The 1980s were characterized by that approach by both IBM and Apple. Now we intend to address more vertical markets since more consumers have expectations for specialized systems rather than for lowest common denominator systems, just like the auto business. It seems like there's been less emphasis on the industrial design of Macintosh since about the time of the 2CX. I disagree. In terms of in-house people, and then in terms of contracts with outside designers, we've increased the investment at Apple. In general, the value of industrial design is significant and highly valued because it's part of what we want our products to be in order to differentiate them from the world of IBM PCs and PC clones. At the same time, it's important that we have flexibility and reusability of industrial design, the CPU boxes, so that we don't just get one CPU out of each design print. What about the Quadra 900? It's somewhat in that category. Some of the issues considered when we designed the 900 were that we wanted a machine that would never be short of power, cooling, expansion, or board space. A machine that could be configured as wanted, and at the same time, a CPU that has more than a plain tower workstation look. The Classic is going into Sears and other consumer outlets. What does that change portend for Apple? Sears, CompUSA, and others are kind of a halfway house in the change of sales channels for Apple. Sears runs computer sales as a computer store within the store, so that's rather like our retail channel at present. Other examples are places that offer a 30-day money-back guarantee, like Macy's, where the consumer can return the product to the store. That's different from Apple's conventional retail outlets. It's illegal to offer the same product with two different terms and conditions of sale. The exact same product can't be sold in two different ways. So, as we move into the heart of the consumer channel, 
Good Guys, Circuit City, Office Club, Sam's, etc., we have to produce different products because those stores will have different terms and conditions. Sears and CompUSA don't fall into that category. There are several phases to what we want to do. First, meet the legal requirements. Second, address the different philosophies of the two channels. In one, you buy a CPU and a monitor and configure the system you want. In the other, the consumer mass market, you pick out one thing, all packaged as a bundle. It's for less sophisticated customers and less training, and sophistication is needed for the salesperson. The third phase is addressing these new and different customers. What can we do to make the customer pick out our product? Price is one thing. An all-in-one machine like the Classic is another. Going beyond what the clones do. Ever been to Circuit City? There are two kinds of display racks for computers, one with accessories and another with CPUs side-by-side. Side. That's different from Businessland and CompUSA. At Circuit City, CPUs are on racks between boomboxes and appliances. What are your thoughts on the original Macintosh Portable? What did we do wrong? There were a couple of problems. We were rookies, just not experienced enough in terms of portability. Earlier, companies like Compaq did portables that were luggable. That was the state of the art then. When we got in, in a catch-up mode, we didn't do the right thing in terms of capability, size, and price. The other big area, a problem for most companies, is institutional memory. We did the design in the way we always had. That stifled new product ideas. For example, we wanted to leverage existing technology like our disk drive, floppy drive, and system board. We had always done single board computers. The portable had everything on one system board, rather than several daughter boards stuffed into little nooks and crannies. We also wanted to reduce our labor costs. All that drove the technology to be bigger than it had to be and conspired to make the portable mediocre. Since then, on projects such as the PDA, rather than trying to do the project in an existing group where institutional memory could be debilitating, we have new groups, such as the Advanced Products Group, where there are fewer rules. That's one way to solve the problem, but we can't start a new division whenever we want to do a different product, so we need to be able to break the rules in the core divisions as well. How did you make the decision to bring out the Quadra 950? The 950 and the LC2 are in the same category of looking for key opportunities to get a quick product update from existing products for a high return on investments. The original 68020-based LC was a hot product. There was concern from some customers about the lack of a 68030. It took five months from the idea of adding a 68030 to the introduction date and there was a big customer impact. Same on the 950. Initially, there would have been more differentiation between the Quadra 700 and 900, but when we announced, Motorola had problems with the 33 MHz 040. We said, fine, we'll use a 25 MHz part, but we want to move the stake ahead as quickly as we can. If you do a return on investment calculation, 12 months revenue from the product divided by the product development cost you can understand what we try to do. The Macintosh 2 was a bunch of new things, which meant a lower return on investment. The 2CX was the product that people really wanted, and it was, in many ways, a revision of the Macintosh 2, so the CX had a higher return on investment. Likewise, the 950 is a rev of the 900. 
How do you decide on implementing new technology? It's very subjective, based on what we want to do in terms of technology, what we want on the logic board, whether something will cost zero, whether we're adding features that everyone will use. Free things are easy to decide. Hardware things cost. So we look at usage patterns. What percentage of the time users or applications would use a new feature? We felt that because of engineering and desktop publishing applications for the Quadra, networking was important, and built-in Ethernet would pay off for buyers. The rough threshold for hardware is $25 for adding a feature. If something costs $10, but only 10% of owners will use it, we might throw that idea out. What future technologies will appear in Macs? Higher quality sound input and output, more video integration, communications for both local and wide area networks. When will Apple offer optical technology? A few years ago, people felt that magnetic recording would be history by now, that optical technology would take over. But magnetic recording has advanced faster than people expected, and optical more slowly. Optical has the disadvantages of not having the low cost of a floppy drive or the performance of a hard disk. So at present, it's a niche technology. It's difficult to view as mainstream just yet. Sony has announced mini disks for audio, pitted against Philips, which has announced digital compact cassette. If Sony's successful at the consumer audio level, that would be a factor in lowering the cost of optical. CD-ROMs are derived from mass-market CD audio, which helps drive the cost down. Read-Write Magneto-Optical has no consumer equivalent and is expensive. If mini-discs take off and become 10 million unit per year consumer products, that would lower the price for Magneto-Optical. It has been said that people don't really retire from Apple. Is that still the case? In antiquity, many people retired from the company after the IPO, or with money from stock. There was a period from, say, 1983 to 1989, when Apple was a place people came to on their way to other companies. Now there are a lot of us who've been here for a long time and plan to stay. Apple has changed a lot in the last three years in terms of human resources and retirement. We're not conventional about retirement, like Mother IBM, but with Apple's contributions to our 401k and profit sharing, the opportunity exists for an Apple employee who wants to retire. The question is also one of philosophy. Now it's possible to lead a high-energy but normal existence at Apple and not burn out in the process. What is your favorite Apple story? When we were doing the Mac Plus, the company was up in the air. It wasn't clear who worked for whom. We needed a thermal test of the new Mac Plus design, and the testing facility was fully booked. We didn't have time to negotiate. So one weekend, Another guy and I blocked out all the vents in a lab area room that was about 10 by 20 feet. We went to Kmart and bought heaters and fans and did the testing there. We brought the room up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit to test the product that saved the company. In June 1993, Eric and PowerBook development leader John Medica left Apple to turn around the notebook division at Dell amidst severe growing pains. See the show notes for details. Uh -huh.